Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And we're going to do something a little different today. Last year, uh, when Bruce Damer was visiting various festivals and psychedelic communities in Australia, he gave a talk in Melbourne that inspired some musicians who were in attendance to suggest that he do a version of that talk to music, live music. Now, let me back up a bit here. Years ago, one of the ways in which Terence McKenna became known to a much wider audience was by his appearance at raves, where he would give a talk while a DJ spun in the background or groups like Lost at Last played. And ever since Terence began this trend, uh, well, a lot of us tried our hands at copying this new way of giving a psychedelic talk. I'm not sure, but I think that this may have uh, begun at one of Fraser Clark's events at Megatropolis in London. The way that uh, I heard Terence tell the story was that after he spoke one night at Fraser's, he was uh, approached by a leader of a group called The Shaman uh, to do something original for their next album. So they went over to this person's apartment, uh, sat around the kitchen table, and recorded Terence uh, kind of giving an off-the-cuff rap. And at the time, Terence thought that this was to be an audition for a more professional recording session. But as it turned out, that live recording at the kitchen table that night is what we can now listen to on the Shaman's album Boss Drum. And if you haven't already heard that bit, you really owe it to yourself to give it a listen. In my opinion, it's one of the best 15 minutes of Terence McKenna that you're going to hear. Maybe the uh, seminal Terence McKenna musical talk is Alien Dreamtime, which was produced by my friend Ken Adams, uh, who you've heard from here in the salon on several occasions. And like certain books that are required for the well-equipped psychedelic library, Alien Dreamtime is uh, also a must-have CD for the serious collector. But getting back to introducing today's program, it is a uh, musical-slash-spoken-word piece by Bruce Damer, who is backed up by the Fay Street House Band, led by Joe Oppenheimer on loops, effects, and acoustic, with Darcy Davis on keys and Agnes Donald on percussion. Now, if you've never tried to do this yourself, you may think that it couldn't be all that difficult. <laughs> However, uh, I did try it one night myself, and I know differently. I won't bore you with the whole story, but late on the uh, Saturday night, just before the 9-11 attacks, at a learning party rave in Hollywood, Matt Palomary and I attempted to uh, give a talk while being backed up by Jacques Oliver on the keyboards. And in case you don't know it, Jacques is uh, also the creator of the background theme music here in the salon. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, it didn't work out quite as well as we planned it, uh, probably because uh, we so seriously mistimed our drugs and uh, began to peak much too soon. But that's another story. My point being that these spoken word gigs are not all that easy to pull off. And so I was pleasantly surprised when I first got to listen to the recording that I'm about to play for you. We all have our own reference points for works like this, but I have to admit uh, surprising myself at what first came to my mind when I heard this rap by Bruce. Of all the times and places, uh, it took me back to a trip that I took to New York City in the spring of 1960. My friends and I uh, wanted to experience the hottest scene going on at the time, and so we went down to Greenwich Village to a beatnik coffee shop to listen to the Beats recite their new poetry, 
which was performed with live music in the background. And that is the emotional place that I found myself in when I began listening to Bruce and the Fay Street House Band. I hope that something as interesting happens to you right now as well. When you're all ready, I shall tell you a story that might fit for mycelium, definitely fits for these pants. say in Cajun in our side of the pond how y'all are doing all right y'all are good so where were we Joe what should we do what do you want to hear Madre on Mars well the Madre and I went to Mars one night but we first stopped over at the moon. The Madre's question was, where out here can I live? Where can I live? And having done work for NASA for years, I decided to give it a run. So I said, jump on my backpack, you know, juice up my jetpack we're going on a trip so we first went to the limb of the earth and she said that's my domain that is my space that you guys are trying to erase and as you erase my space and you rub out my green I look to you for the climbing machine and I first saw it when you sent those three guys to the moon the big white thing and I said I want one of those for my collection if you're sending three jockey pilots to the moon why can't I go so I said to her let's do it so instead of the white penile machine of the Saturn V, I took her on my back in my jetpack. And as we approached the moon, we looked for a place to set down. I said, do you want an ocean, a mare, or a highland? She said, I want an island where I can try my mind in it. So we went to the top of Shackleton Crater. We went to the place where I thought we'd come back later. 
where she could take hold where there was water but it was so so cold so I took her down and she reached into the ground she put her tongue around and she said I can't live here I can't imbibe this dust what have you done bringing me without any uh, without any consideration of what I need to live so I said to her that was my answer to you I need to find out what you need to live and she said well okay I've got a really powerful body but you have the mind and you're carrying the intellectual booty that can take my body to where I need to be and I said why did you choose us and she said I ran out of time the earth is past middle age past its prime I said what do you mean she said I can't hold the plants on the land much longer the ice scraped them off last time in the deserts are pushing them out yonder there will be no more plants on the land in 400 million years I can't hold it back the earth tilted and tilted the wrong way into the sun and the deserts are growing so I said well why didn't you do it with the dinosaurs and she said I got bored with the dinosaurs so one night I said off with their heads collectively the tyrannosaurus the pterosaurus and the pterodactyl just didn't interest me anymore they were very self-centered none of them looked up to the sky so one night I ordered the airstrike and the airstrike came in and it hit in Mexico your current day Yucatan and it took them all down and I picked you guys the mammals I said couldn't you try again with the arachnids you know wouldn't they be better at dealing with the radiation she said they're my backup plan my backup jackup plan <laughs> and uh, so I said alright you've got a deal we're going to Mars I got a special inside track I know how to drop the belly pan off the rover and I can show her. So we sailed to Mars. We bounced off Phobos. We ricocheted off Deimos. And we went through the atmosphere. No need for airbags here. 
we ended up in Gusev Crater. And I said, we'll be back later. I showed her the snowy mountaintops of the solar system's most tall mountain, Olympus Mons, so tall that it sticks out of the atmosphere. It snows up there, but you can't ski. Then I took her back down to the equator where a dust storm was kicking up, and I said, Mother, if you want to clean your dishes, just hang them outside. And I took her to the poles, and she really liked that scene. Lots and lots of frozen water. You could build a jacuzzi there in an instant. So then we headed back to Gusev, and in Gusev was a little machine, a little machine going crunch, crunch, crunch on the ground, driving three inches an hour. Crunch, 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 driving on its own. Human seers at Jet Propulsion Lab out for their lunches in the commissary, not paying attention. So I whipped out my screw gun, and with my screw gun I said, Madre, take a look. And I put the gun under the belly pan, found the six bolts, and I shunted them off, dropped that belly pan, and then said, Madre, put your hand here. Put your hand on the vehicle. What do you feel? And she did it. And I said, what do you feel? She said, I feel life. There's life in here. I said, what kind of life? She said, some of my greatest creations. Thirteen species of bacteria all asleep, dried up. But they are my great creations. They're complex. They have a hundred million year warranty. So I said to her, you see, we're not so bad, us monkeys. We're erasing your green. We're winnowing your oceans of all life. We're consuming everything as hamburgers. But we're not so bad. We got life to Mars. We did it. We did it without intending it. But that's how it always works. So she turned to me and she said, Then there is hope. This project has some hope. It has some shape. It's not all about the dope all about you dopes dope is how we see the answers I said you gave us all the dope ayahuasca ergotamine mushrooms it's all about the dope the dope in the minds of the monkeys it gives us vision it gives us hope it's about the dope so keep delivering it. It's a Hollywood finish. It's going to be a car chase. It's down to the last minute. We will erase the last rainforest 
as we prep for the launch, for the ascension, for the bubble to burst, and for life to spread outside the confines of the earth. And the Madre said, that's cool, you've got a deal. said, we'll consume it all, but we will deliver on the commitment. You will find another home. Anybody have another request? You mean the endogenous thing? Should I describe endotripping? All right. So let's do a... Yeah, that sounds good. A kind of a... Yeah. (laughs) So when you were eight years old and you were a great being. You could leap as twice as high as your body, the length of your body. You could smell things all at once. You were like a dog. You could have lots of feelings at once, but they didn't overwhelm you. They didn't kill you. You could see everything all smushed together or all separate. Remember that when you were eight? You were just so flexible. You were amazing. And one of the things you did or you could do, which most of us have forgotten about, is when you went to sleep, if you could get to sleep, you closed your eyes and behind your eyes because you always had stimulating days, you saw flashes, little flashes. Those flashes were also washes. They were also patterns moving back and forth. And as you became an adult, later on, you thought of them as inconveniences. You thought of them as, oh, I'm overstimulated. Oh, I need to go to sleep. I have to get up and go to work. Isn't this a terrible thing that these flashes are happening? Well, when I was eight and I saw the flashes, I thought, these are amazing. These are just amazing. I want them to grow. I want them to grow into something. How do I do that? And the way I worked that was just to give them attention and say, oh, these are great. Every every one that flashed across my vision, I was like, that's cool. Then the next one happened. The next one, little pinky things, scarlet things, washes started, sweeping across, one after the other, wash after wash after wash, and just loved it. Then slightly... In the field of view, there was little jewels, little rotating jewels went by. Just little jewels going by. I was like, oh, this is so good. And I wanted them so much, I said, I will do anything to keep them going. 
So I wished that, and they did. They did keep going. But they told me one thing. They said, you must get out of our way, and we can really come on. So I said, how do I do that? And they didn't answer. And I had to figure it out. It was, how do I get out of my own way? How do you get out of your own way? And the answer is the following. How do you get out of your own way? How do you get out of your own way? How do Then the blotches started, the colored blotches were dancing, and all I was was the crystal sphere, the tiniest sphere, all I was, and the worlds opened. And everything happened. landscapes no language it's very hard to talk about this with language because there wasn't any it was just voyaging later I tried to draw it and then I started drawing more of it I drew craft spacecraft This was the era of Star Wars, the first movies. So everything looked like the Millennium Falcon or the TIE Fighter or something even crazier. Globule tired city parkscapes moving along. Factory ships half destroyed, blowing out their ballast near collisions of whole civilizations. Very, very weird landscapes that I dare not tread into. So this went on and on and on. I drew it layer after layer after layer on big notebooks. I stopped taking notes. In school, I stopped writing English. All I did was draw layer upon layer upon layer of these worlds as the teachers droned on. And then I found out I could remember everything the teachers said by simply looking at what I drew. Looking at the drawing, I remembered the entire year. So to study was to simply remember the drawing. So this became my practice. A practice that you couldn't practice. You could only do it. And later on I could see code. I could see millions of lines of computer code. I could debug it this way. 
I could debug code this way. I could see structures flowing into structures this way. Later on, I could see avatars in cyberspace and fantastical virtual worlds. I could see them and then make them. So I started to bring these worlds alive in virtual worlds. And then one day, I was put in touch with this man named Terence McKenna, who also created worlds and entered them. He wanted to enter my worlds, worlds made out of language and technology, virtual worlds. So one day we swapped places, and he let me enter his worlds. And I entered his worlds, but in a different way. But Terence didn't know that my worlds, my worlds were made from his worlds. So I kept going, and I kept doing what I now call endo, the endogenous way, doing it what Terence called on the natch what Terence felt was never possible on the Natch. And I do it to this day. But recently, I've worked out a way to do them together. The on the Natch way, the endo way, and the entheo way all merged into one. And now I'm going to some places, I can tell you. So that's my story of what happens when you're eight years old and you see the flashes. It can lead to a lot of things, including some spectacular crashes, crashes into realities that you can break and splay and restructure So now I'm restructuring the theories of the origin of life with this endo way. I'm coming up with the way that we may have begun in a cycle of flowing molecular vesicles. I'm restructuring, revisioning, and endo-tripping the trips we may take into space in new kinds of spacecraft how we can capture comets, how we can digest them, and so how we can live in the solar system. And it all starts with the little flashes, folks, the little flashes. So don't uh, bat your lashes. This is uh, the real deal, these flashes. And they're still going on in your adult brain. It's still accessible. It's still a path for the successful in the endo way. So there you have another one. Getting it. Thank you.
next story I'm going to tell you is the story of a visitation by an orb. How many of you are into orbs? You're into orbs? This is an orbiting crowd. So, I was in Peru in the Maloca having drunk the vile liquid. The shaman had played his heart out. The musician had ikaroed until midnight hour. And there was a bit of a break. So I lay down on the floorboards and I looked in between the bench seats, kind of like the yoga seats that are here. And I said and I asked, I'd like to see it. Could I please see it? And I didn't see it. It didn't come. The thing that I'd asked to see for some years. And of course you kind of gotta follow the leads. You sometimes don't get what you want. And so I sat up. And then Desert Dave, our musician, the Chirango master, he lit up suddenly. And he started playing the Chirango. And the phenomenal thing happened to our room. The heart entered the room. My heart opened. My mind left like a baseball cap. My mind floated up like a dragonfly, like a firefly dragonfly. And I watched my mind flow down and end up on the Maloka floor. And I can sense that my mind was really pleased to be there, to be disconnected from me. It didn't have to do all the terrible things that the mind does when it's connected to a person. It chilled out. It was like, thank God I'm not connected to that guy anymore. And so I opened it up. I was like a Coke bottle without a cap on it. I was open to the cosmos, and the Chirango music flooded in, and my heart was soothed. My heart rose out of my throat, up through my non-existent mind, up into the, the skull cup, the gourd of my skull, and then it went up, and it went into the cathedral, the magisterial cathedral that forms in the tryptamine dome of ayahuasca. And you sit up and you realize you are witnessing the most magnificent magnificence that a human being can experience. This incredible dome with its ribs flowing with light. And you are open to it. And the shaman gets up because he senses it. He senses that your heart has moved up. And the whole room's heart moves up. And he picks up the harmonica. And when he plays the harmonica, it brings the greatest power to bear that a human being can witness. The harmonica brings the power. It brings the magenta shard directly piercing you 
and holding you. And you are kept. You are captured by the power. And so all this happened. All this happened. And I lay back down, laid my head back down, still mindless. And my cheek hit the floorboards. And I looked out into the jungle. And I looked across the river. And I looked at the top of the fronds of the forest canopy across the river. And there it was. The orb was there. The orb was presenting. Oh my God, there it is. What I've sought for so long is there. What do I do now? It's just there. Is it 13 billion years away? Or is it right here? So I asked it, are you in the past? Are you the Big Bang? And it said, I'm always here. I'm the cosmogenerator. I'm not the cosmogenesis. The cosmogenesis is a guy that I knew a long time ago, but he's out of the picture. So I crawled back into the Maloka, holding this thing in my head. How can I possibly hold this thing in my head? What am I do with this thing? So I crawled over to Scott. And Scott, my professor friend, the world's expert on the golden mean, on the golden proportion, he was chit-chatting. He was telling somebody else about the formulas, the formulas that generate all the numbers, the formulas that have phi and phi in them, and they generate all the whole numbers. And I tried to see these formulas in my head. I tried to see these formulas. I'd never seen them on the page. And I said, Scott, wait a minute. I'll be right back. And I rolled my body toward the mandala, the mandala that was hanging in the baloka. And I sat up in front of the mandala. And the mandala is the Hoover vacuum cleaner of energy in such circumstances. It is blasting energy into the maloka. And you get a nice breeze off of it. And so I said, now where do I go? Now where do I go? And I went in, let mind go, let it go, let the mathematics go, let Scott go, let the maloka go. And closed my eyes. And the orb was inside. The orb was right in front of me. The orb was there. And I blinked. And I looked back. And around the orb were orbiting the unities. These small spheres were moving, ever moving around the belly of the orb. The equator 
they were moving and I saw I looked closer and closer and they were moving to avoid each other as they orbited moving to avoid each other and I saw the patterns of the avoidances and suddenly it was all making sense these patterns were generating reality these very patterns so I pulled back I closed my eyes again crawled back to Scott and said to Scott I am seeing it we need to go to see your notes I need to read the equations so we dragged ourselves to his tombow he took out his flashlight he cracked open his notebook and there were the equations and I said oh my god there they are the equations that take you from the orb to reality these are the equations that generate all reality and then I said Scott I've got to close my eyes and I closed them again and this time there were thousands of unities flowing around the orb thousands skaters, gliders shifters and they were generating these flow patterns and the flow patterns were distinct whirls like the whirls of soft tissues coming off soft tissues and those whirls and those folds were the formulas and I realized oh my god this is how the universe is made all the time we found the answer this is how you go from the fuzzy orb to the individual atom the atoms are made but they're not just made they're operated they're operated all the time this is the cosmo generator it's generating the whole cosmos so that was about all I could do for that night so I slunk back to my tombow and I crashed out and thought that would be the end of it but two nights later it was our day trip our day trip that one time you're going to take the medicine by day and weird things happen on these day trips weird things happen like it rains and the rains hit the top of the maloka and they cause a timbre in the air and they crystallize the energy and then you can stand up and sculpt the energy and spray it onto people so i always do this i stand up and i spray energy on people it's really amazing on the, the day trip And one more time, I called out for the orb. I said, are you there? Are you still out there? Can you be there by day? Can I see you in the day? Because we always think we can only see the celestial at night. But sure enough, there it was, over the jungle top once again. 
and I was in the middle of getting up and I said to it as I always say at these moments are you a machine are you a machine that made us where is spirit in you all I'm seeing is a machine and it said get up stop thinking and start moving do the dance and I started to dance and it started to dance and its dance infused me with spirit no figuring out no mechanics that's a given it said it's all about the dance can't you see that I dance the cosmos into reality you dance you get the others up to dance that is spirit that is how the cosmos is a living breathing moving entity Listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And now that Bruce has taken us to the far edges of the cosmos, it's my job to bring us back down to Earth again and see if we can get back into our very clear little eight year old minds for a reboot, so to speak. For the past several weeks, we've been listening to Terence McKenna explore some of his thoughts about alchemy. And I suspect that I'm not the only one who has made the connection between some of the ways in which alchemical thinking parallels what I like to call psychedelic thinking. To me, psychedelic thinking is mainly the thought processes that we allow to escape from whatever boxes that we normally would have them in and allow these ideas to uh, soar and take new forms. An example for me would be uh, what Bruce was just talking about when he described the new way that he found to recall what had been said in class. Instead of doing what he and his classmates had been taught about uh, taking notes, he drew pictures and they, in turn, led him to the discovery of a new way to remember the lessons of the day. It was an idea that was way out of the school's box, and to me that was a psychedelic idea. Over the past few weeks, I've been reading a couple of the books that Terence mentioned, and so I've discovered that some of the ways in which I view psychedelic thinking are very similar to states of mind that the alchemists of old either held or attempted to hold. Of course, uh, all this is <laughs> very problematic due to the fact that using small mouth noises and scratches on paper or pixels on a screen to create the words being used to describe some of these mind states, well, it's a seriously deficient way to converse about these ideas. But uh, that never stops us, does it? <laughs> so uh, here's something that I've been thinking about lately in regards to alchemy, psychedelics, and the state of the world today. 
And with a topic that broad, you see, uh, well, I can say almost anything now, (laughs) which uh, should be your first clue about listening to me. And that is that I actually do realize that all of my best ideas may be nothing more than uh, interesting-sounding bullshit. If you're listening to this podcast more than a year after I've recorded it, well, there's a good chance that I've changed my mind about all or some of this. So don't go taking anything I say as something that you should hold on to. What I'm hoping is that I can maybe get you to thinking about these things on your own and that maybe you'll come up with some uh, more coherent ways to bring these thoughts into other minds. Now, even if you are living in a cave somewhere, you know about the recent terrorist attacks in Brussels. And as the aftermath of that tragedy was unfolding in the background of my life, I was also reading The Chemical Wedding by Lindsay Clark, uh, a book that Terrence recommended several weeks ago. As I neared the end of the book, I came across this thought. Quote, It was about holding together. If we were to find a key to the explosive condition of the world, it could only be done by holding contraries together. That was the key. End quote. So, holding contraries together, the old coincidentia oppositorum that we've heard Terence speak of so many times, it's a phrase that I think I've heard so often that now I don't even stop for a moment to actually think about what that means. But at the time that I read that thought that I just quoted to you, I had uh, recently been thinking about the Brussels bombing. And while I'm not proud of this thought, I was actually thinking that perhaps that racist madman Trump might be right about his stance on Muslims. However, I immediately remembered a Japanese-American friend of mine whose parents had been forced into a concentration camp here in the States uh, during World War II. What a terrible blot on U.S. history that event was. This nation didn't inter Germans or people from any other country with whom we were at war. Only the Japanese. Uh, Maybe because they looked different, I don't know. But I still recall some of her stories about the devastating effect that that program of unjust incarceration had on her family. And so my knee-jerk reaction about Muslims, uh, well, it only lasted for a fraction of a second. But where did that dark thought come from, I asked myself. And then I remembered some of the talks that we've heard from Ann Shulgin about dealing with our own shadows. And uh, as a little aside here, I'd like to mention that just this past week, our dear friend Ann Shulgin turned 85. And as some of our old-timers here in the salon can attest, that is uh, much more of an accomplishment than us younger people can understand. However, uh, as I pondered on my own thoughts from the dark side, I tried to figure out why I had that momentary instinct which led me to my shadow side when thinking about religious terrorists, in this case, Muslims. I won't bore you with all of my personal history here, but there are two things that took place early on in my life that basically skewed it in directions uh, other than what I wanted in my heart. One of those things was being raised in a somewhat strict Catholic family. Since uh, almost every one of us here in the salon either uh, suffered through a Catholic childhood or know someone who did, I don't need to go into the horror of being a young boy who had it beat into him that he would burn forever in hell if he had what the priests and nuns called impure thoughts. What a horrible mindset to impose on a child. But thinking about that caused me to give another thought to these seriously misguided people who blow themselves up, taking a lot of innocent bystanders with them. I'm not trying to justify their actions, but for sure... 
They didn't think this way when they were infants or small children. Somehow these suicide bombers were reprogrammed from being an innocent, fun-loving little child into the monsters that they became. I may be wrong about this, but it seems to me that their parents, their religion, and their culture were the major factors in twisting them so badly. Just as my own mind was twisted, albeit in a less destructive way, by the Catholic Church. So, I'm an equal opportunity anti-religious person. I think that all forms of organized religion are counterproductive to us great apes who wish to grow into real human beings. And for what it's worth, uh, I've decided to classify those particular thoughts of mine as coming from my shadow, my dark side. The other thing that changed the direction of my life in ways other than what I wanted for myself was the U.S. military draft. Now, today young men in the States don't have to worry about having their schooling or career path interrupted by spending several years in the military. But back during the American War in Vietnam, the thought of being forced into the military and possibly dying in a Southeast Asian jungle hung over all of our heads. Virtually every educational and career decision that we made back then were shaped by the specter of the military draft. And so, in 1973, when the draft finally came to an end, well, I was ecstatic knowing that my two sons wouldn't have to live with that threat hanging over their heads. But today I have to admit that I was wrong in working to eliminate the draft because, among other things, changing from an army of citizen soldiers to an army composed of professional warriors has seriously impacted overall the U.S. military strategy. While my friends and I were at first delighted with the end of conscription, we now see that it has uh, taken an unexpected toll on our democracy. Recently, an essay in Salon magazine began, and I quote, In the decades since the draft ended in 1973, a new strange military has emerged in the United States. Think of it, if you will as a post-democratic force that prides itself on its warrior ethos rather than the old-fashioned citizen-soldier ideal. As such, it's a military increasingly divorced from the people, with a way of life ever more foreign to most Americans, uh, adulatory as they may feel towards its troops. Abroad, it's now regularly put to purposes foreign to any traditional idea of national defense. In Washington, it has become a force unto itself, following its own priorities, pursuing its own agendas, increasingly unaccountable to either the President or Congress, end quote. It's a truly interesting essay, and I'll link to it in today's program notes in the event that you want to read the entire essay, which I do recommend. But here are a couple more quotes from it that have bearing on what is going on in the United States today. And I quote, In the purer ages of the Commonwealth of Rome, the use of arms was reserved for those ranks of citizens who had a country to love, a property to defend, and some share in enacting those laws, which it was their interest as well as duty to maintain. But in proportion, as the public freedom was lost in extent of conquest, war was gradually improved into an art and degraded into a trade. As the U.S. has become more authoritarian and more expansive, its military has come to serve the needs of others, among them elites driven by dreams of profit and power. Today's American version of the military is enormous, garrisoning roughly 800 foreign bases across the globe, 
capable of sending its Hellfire missile arm drones on killing missions into country after country across the greater Middle East and Africa, and possessing a vision of what it likes to call full-spectrum dominance, meant to facilitate global reach, global power. In sum, the U.S. military is far more powerful, far less accountable, and far more dangerous. And uh, finally, I continue to quote, It is, in other words, a post-democratic leviathan to be reckoned with, and not a single Democratic or Republican candidate for commander-in-chief has spent a single day in uniform. End quote. Now, you may think that there is a civilian control of the Pentagon, as the U.S. Constitution calls for, but that fairy tale ended in November of 1963, when the deep state engineered a coup d'etat, which is a story that I don't have time to go into right now. However, if you are well-read, you already know the story of how the CIA, FBI, and Pentagon, along with the Mafia, murdered President Kennedy and essentially took over the reins of power from the women and men that we had previously elected to run this country. And you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to know these things. All you have to do is read a few of the hundreds of books about the history of those days to discover the truth. Unfortunately, uh, simply knowing the truth isn't enough to set you free. So, now we find ourselves in 2016, and we see our friends, relatives, and neighbors listening to pinheads like Donald Trump trying to instill fear in everyone. And so I find myself, uh, during only a brief moment, but a frightening one, thinking that, well, maybe Trump's ideas will be necessary for a while. Which is pure bullshit thinking when brought into the light of day. Yet, I have to admit that the thought actually passed through my mind. But here are the actual facts. Did you know that from 2005 through 2015, a total of only 71 Americans have been killed by terrorists on U.S. soil? And only 24 of them were killed by Muslim terrorists. The rest lost their lives to screwed-up right-wing American white guys. During that same period, there were over 130,000 people who died in the U.S. from automobile accidents, falling in the bathtub, and things like that. But as a result of the fear that our politicians and military brass have installed in the people, we have essentially given up much of our freedom to be left alone and not spied upon. Each year in the U.S., over 41,000 people commit suicide. But on average, only seven U.S. citizens die each year as a result of terrorism. Do you see something wrong with that picture and with our priorities? So, here we are, living in a world that seems to have gone mad. It's a world, in fact, that many people think is once again in the midst of a world war. I want to read a little something more for you. Uh, It's from an essay titled, A World War Has Begun, Break the Silence. And uh, I'll link to it in the program notes as well. I quote, In 2009, President Obama stood before an adoring crowd in the center of Prague, in the heart of Europe. He pledged himself to make the world free from nuclear weapons. People cheered and some cried. A torrent of platitudes flowed from the media. Obama was subsequently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. It was all fake. He was lying. The Obama administration has built more nuclear weapons, more nuclear warheads, more nuclear delivery systems, more nuclear factories. Nuclear warhead spending alone rose higher under Obama than under any American president. The cost over 30 years is more than $1 trillion. A mini-nuclear bomb is planned. 
It is known as the B-61 Model 12. There has never been anything like it. General James Cartwright, a former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said, Going smaller makes using this nuclear weapon more thinkable. In the last 18 months, the greatest buildup of military forces since World War II, led by the United States, is taking place along Russia's western frontier. Not since Hitler invaded the Soviet Union have foreign troops presented such a demonstrable threat to Russia. End quote. It goes on, but I think you get my point. As I've often said, on the day that I was born in 1942, the entire world was at war. But things are worse today. So, uh, <laughs> now that I've most likely spun you down into a deep funk, how about I try to take all of this bad news and old history and try to roll it up into something that you can hold on to in a more positive fashion. During the course of the past month or so, we've been listening to Terence McKenna talk about the importance of bringing the principles of alchemy back into our lives today. Not the fake alchemy of turning lead into gold, but the real alchemy, the one that searches for the philosopher's stone. Dealing with the dark side of life and with our own shadows, and at the same time focusing on the good parts of life, is to understand what is meant by holding two opposites in our mind at one time. That is, uh, dealing with the coincidentia oppositorum in our own life. We all have our shadow, our dark side, and if we aren't careful during these days when events seem to be out of control, when there are times when we almost are willing to turn ourselves over to the anti-human politicians of the establishment, the ones who seem to be in charge these days, when we see that shadow beginning to take hold on our emotions, it is then, more than any other time, that we need to grab a hold of our own personal philosopher's stone and deal with our conflicting emotions. In short, we must all become alchemists. And those were the thoughts that were in my mind as I was reading The Chemical Wedding when I came upon this paragraph. I quote, Then I saw what was not so obvious, that the holding together could only be done by Quakers. And that meant not only the Society of Friends, uh, however aptly named, but men and women everywhere who were prepared to quake. For quaking was what happened when you endured inside yourself the tension of divisive forces. It was what happened when you refused to shrug them off, neither disowning your own violence nor deploying it, not admitting only the good and throwing evil in the teeth of the opposition, but holding the conflict together inside of yourself as yours, the dark and the light of it, the love and the lovelessness, the terror and the hope. And as you did this, you changed. The situation changed. In the end, what mattered was how many people were prepared to quake this way, for such quaking spirits were the keepers of the keys. It is about holding together. If we were to find a key to the explosive condition of the world, it could only be done by holding contraries together. That is the key. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Now go out and become an alchemist yourself. Find your personal stone. And be well, my friends.